0: Chapter Thirteen, Part Three of Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Chapter Thirteen, Part Three. I tried to do some writing after dinner, but the insects forbade it. An ant, a large animal with gauzy wings, being particularly troublesome. This is really the white ant grown to a harmless size. In its earliest stages, when it is eaten by the black ant, the destruction it works in a single night is terrible. Literally, it eats you out of house and home by perforating the timbers of the house with holes "'till they become rotten. "'It eats through a box "'and leaves no trace of any clothes "'ever having been in it, "'or penetrates through the corks "'and drinks of a cellar full of wine. "'There is no finality to the mischief "'the white ant can and does work in a house. "'Safety against it is only obtained "'by a daily inspection "'and airing of anything and everything.'" A very curious custom prevails throughout Java, which we only found out this evening. We frequently passed gardos or watch-houses, a white building by the roadside, open on all sides. From the center of the house hangs a billet of wood partially hollowed out, which, when struck, gives forth a piercing, mournful sound. Day and night a watchman is stationed here, sounding the watches every hour. It is a wonderful thought that throughout an island as large as England and Wales, these watches are re-echoed throughout the country every mile, and every hour becoming later and later as it reaches the interior of the country. It is cheering in the stillness of the night, hearing the sound of the watch struck from the guardo nearest the station, taken up by the next one, and so on through the town, "'spreading and dying away into the country. "'The Malays and Javanese are not allowed to be in the streets "'between the hours of 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. "'without a passport to show to the watchman, "'who calls and demands it as they pass. "'The watchman is provided with a two-pronged upward-toothed fork, "'with which he can run in any refractory member of society by the neck.' And he has the power to detain anyone, not giving satisfactory reasons for being about at that hour. If a robbery or crime occurs, the first thing is to give notice at the nearest guardhouse, which, by a code of signals, is able to pass on the news to the next guardhouse, and so it spreads through the country. Each watchman knows what passports and on what business everyone has passed during the night and suspicion thus often falls on the right person. The services of these watchmen are unpaid, it being the duty of each village chief to allot the hours to each member of the community, who may provide a substitute if he please. Java is divided into campos, or villages, governed by chiefs who are responsible for the good conduct of each individual of their division. Any complaint of man, woman or child, is referred to the chief of the campo. Thus, the government of the people is done by themselves, and there are but a very few native police, irregularly parading the streets in their blue and orange uniforms. Wednesday, December 24th. We got up very early in the morning, not from compulsion, but for pleasure, to enjoy to our utmost the delicious first freshness of the morning air. But early as it was, blue as the mist lay over our glorious view of the valley, ladies and their sarongas were coming in from their morning walk. I went down to the bath, or rather the well, where you throw the bucket of cold water over you, picking a purple gloxinia from the hedge close by. Alas, it was like too many of the tropical beauties and flowers and plants.' "'spoiled by the nest of insects "'hidden in the delicate waxwork of its recesses. "'Breakfast is always going from the very early hour of 6 a.m., "'so we had no need to order it specially. "'And at 8 a.m., we were in the hotel break, "'driving past the gardens to the station. "'We felt very much tempted then to wait a week for the French mail "'instead of taking the Dutch boat tomorrow.' and making an expedition up into the interior of the country to Samarang, or Soabaya. By 10 a.m. we were back in Batavia, and we drove from the Velder station to the museum. The green lawn in the front of the museum is ornamented with a white pedestal, on which stands a black marble elephant. The circular temple, barricaded with black and gold gates, that faces us as we enter, contains a grotesque collection of Hindu gods found in the island, for the natives were formerly Hindus, now they are Muslims. Other rooms are full of Borneo and Sumatra weapons, collections from the South Sea islands of medals and signet rings, Chinese earrings and images. There is a model of a curious saddle covered with black cloth, formerly in use in Java and musical instruments of all sorts, including tom-toms, cymbals, etc. But the two things that interest us most were a guillotine and a Chinese chair of torture. The framework of the latter was of scarlet wood, but the back was formed of three swords, with the edges placed outwards. Three more of the same formed the seat, and three were placed at each elbow and three for the footboard. And the victim was strapped into this chair, sitting on the blades of the swords, being cut deeper with every movement. It was in the library that we came upon some curiously interesting documents, copies of the Java Government Gazette, an English newspaper brought out during our four years, eighteen eleven to fifteen, occupation of Java before its restoration to the Dutch. We very cautiously opened the ant-eaten pages which are nearly destroyed in some places, and a few years hence will have disappeared entirely unless some precautions are taken against their ravages. On the first page that we opened on by chance, I read the following, dated from London, July sixth, 1814. The Gazette of yesterday announced the appointment of the Duke of Wellington as ambassador to France and Lord Fitzroy Somerset as secretary of the legation. A following paragraph contained the account of the Duke's formal farewell to the House of Commons previous to his departure for Paris, and tells how the members remained standing with their hats off and cheered whilst he left the House. The news then took seven months to reach Java, whereas now the mail arrives in twenty-six days. Further on, the Gazette had an account of the discussion before the House on the Princess of Wales' letter asking that Her Royal Highness's allowance might be reduced from £50,000 to £34,000, in order that the burdens of the people may not be increased, as she says. And again, the Emperor of Russia, previous to his quitting London, wished that Dr. Jenner should visit him. His Majesty presented him to his family and made him a present, styling him the benefactor of Russia. The vaccination has produced the most happy results in the empire, where smallpox has often made great havoc. In the Poets' Corner, for even a government gazette in 1815, was allowed that interesting journalistic feature. We found a little poem by Mrs. Opie on the death of a hero who died in action. In another, a poem by Lord Byron on the death of a Sir Peter Parker. One verse from an anonymous writer I cannot resist giving, prefaced by the following letter. Mr. Editor, should you deem the following effusion on shooting a brace of ring-necked doves worthy a place in your paper, you will greatly oblige Comicus. It began as follows. The amorous dove, with ardent love, expects her gentle mate, but keen, with eyes serene, decides her hapless fate inserted between the issue of a later copy of the same paper was a reprint of the conditions of the treaty of paris which had just been signed by the allies and a triumphant leading article on the great tyrant's downfall we did not linger any longer as the custodian of the library was becoming impatient and evidently suspicious of the copious extracts we were making I resigned it with a sigh, guessing how much more of interest we might have found with a longer perusal. We had a pleasant drive in the evening on the outskirts of Batavia, passing country houses, which I suppose called themselves so because they stood in their own grounds, with some attempt at an avenue or drive up to the house. It was our last evening in Batavia, and we were regretfully sad. December 25th. A delicate, rosy, flushing sunrise with saffron and pale green tints on an orange sea. Where the sun was presently to rise in the majesty of tropical heat was the strange sight which greeted us on this Christmas morning. For we were getting up at 5 a.m. and leaving the hotel wrapped in slumber. We're driving through the already busy streets of China Camp to the Heimreidenplein Station. A gay scene met us there, for a company of soldiers in marching array and some officers were being sent off to reinforce the army at Akin, in the north of Sumatra, where the Dutch have a war of some years' standing. A crowd of officers in their pretty dark blue uniform, with orange scarves, the stars on their collars denoting the rank, had come to see their comrades off, and the general himself, superintending their embarkation. A file of convicts in their prison dress, under the charge of their jailers, were being taken in the train to work on the line. The carriages, that hold 87 even under ordinary circumstance, were crowded beyond that number, and the heat and fumes of tobacco were very trying. We all together had a weary waiting of nearly two hours in them, standing stationary at the terminus. A still gayer scene was awaiting us on arrival at Tanjong Priok, For crowds of natives were sauntering about under the bamboo station, and a ship, moored alongside the wharf, was swarming with soldiers, European and native, who had just arrived from the west coast of Borneo. Their band was playing on the deck in honor of the general, the Governor-General Meyer the mail of the netherlands india company lay anchored further away whilst we were waiting to start my thoughts recurred to christmas morning in church with snow on the ground at home but it was hard to keep up any semblance of recollection among the strange surroundings four natives such weak specimens of humanity coming along staggering under the weight of my saratoga trunk which one man had always shouldered before. Officers were having a last bottle of champagne with their departing comrades. The treble shriek of the warning whistles, the bright medley of Malays, Javanese, Sudanese, Hindus, and Chinese, all rendered it impossible. And Christmas Day this year will only be remembered by us by the inconvenience occasioned by the uncertainty of the vessels starting at all on that day and the Sunday train not leaving the station nearest the hotel as usual. The flat coastline was behind us by 9 a.m., and we were passing the sandy dots upon the ocean of the 1,000 islands of the eastern archipelago. We came upon a bed of scoria ashes, stretching for about a mile on either side of us. It is still the remains of the great volcanic eruption on the island of Krakatau in the Straits of Sunda, 18 months ago. The island was totally destroyed, and 70,000 lives were lost. On the 20th of August, 1883, total darkness reigned in Batavia, though 2,000 miles distant from Krakatau, from the density of the shower of ashes falling and terrific claps of thunder from the cracking of the explosion. Ships had to alter their course after the eruption and even a year afterwards passed through a thick sea of pumice ashes stretching as far as the eye could reach. When five days out from Java, in the Merkara, it was this pumice ash floated by on the sea that made the captain think there had been a fresh eruption. A most interesting phenomenon is now in process at Marapai, a mountain in central Java. Government surveys are there watching the rise of the lava in a volcano from day to day, and it is calculated that in about three months from now, it must burst. Should it be a powerful eruption, it is feared it will divide the island of Java into two parts. Meripai is in the same volcanic range that extends through Sumatra, Krakatau, Java, Lombok, and Bali. It will be very curious to see what really happens. After passing the island of Lusipara, we left the Sea of Java and were for a short time in the Straits of Sunda. The Governor General Meyer is very slow, only going between six and eight knots an hour. The foredeck is curtained off, leaving an archway in the canvas through which we get a picturesque glimpse of the Malay and Chinese passengers the latter always alternately sleeping and eating rice with their chopsticks. The Dutch officers are our only companions, and two of them speak a little English. Most amusing instructions are hung up in the saloon as to the wearing of the sarong and kibaya. A literal translation from the Dutch says, It is allowed to the ladies to wear them at breakfast and the rice tag but after 5.30 p.m. it is requested that they will be dressed till after dinner. Certainly the Dutch hours of 7 o'clock dinner on board ship is a great improvement on the 6 o'clock English one. I slept the afternoon away, and a Christmas cake and some mummying among the Dutch sailors gave us a final reminder of Christmas evening. Friday, December 26th. We are coasting along by Sumatra, which looks a very flat island. Sumatra is celebrated for its tobacco plantations, which supply the outer leaf for Havana cigars, being of very fine quality and burning white and clean. The tobacco is exported to Amsterdam, which is one of the greatest emporiums in the world for this article. We enter the Straits of Banka, which are formed by the island of this name, belonging to the Dutch, and the island of Sumatra. The water here is a curious color, olive green, growing more muddy as we approach the entrance of the Talamajan River on the Sumatra coast. We reached Montauk, the chief town of Banka, at night, where we had some cargo to put off. Montauk is the center of a great tin track, worked by Chinese, who were brought there under contract. Saturday, December 27th. Last night, we were stationary by the lighthouse for three hours, the Governor-General being unable to make headway with full steam against the tremendously strong current running there. And this morning, we are catching a breeze from the northeast monsoon, which prevails at this time of the year in the China Sea, and are being further delayed. In the Indian Ocean and China Sea, the monsoon, or strong trade wind, usually blows from the southwest from April to October, and from the northeast from October to April. Typhoons and cyclones, or circular hurricanes, are frequent during the former in the Indian Ocean, and during the latter in the China Sea. We crossed the equator this afternoon. The novelty of this feat has passed away after the first performance of it in the Pacific. How strange it must be living in a town like Pontianac, in West Borneo, where the equator passes through the main street. The house on the line must be quite a showplace to the inhabitants. The heat on the afternoon was very great. Sunday, December 28th. We were at anchor before Rio, a settlement among the palm trees. Rio is a port of some importance, the Dutch having made it a free port, contrary to their principles, when Singapore was thrown open by the English, hoping thus to attract some part of the commerce of the eastern archipelago. We are passing through the pretty straits of Rio, with its wooded banks and straggling cocoa palms. A terribly dangerous reef is marked by a curl of foam. The date of our arrival in Singapore has been growing steadily later, but we shall really be there this afternoon, landing on the Sunday as usual. End of chapter 13 part 3